So today we come to really one of my favorite passages in the Bible. We set it up two times ago, and then Dave did chapter 3 of Daniel, and then, uh, what is it, uh, Pool Rack, Tool Shed, and the Billy Goat, the three, uh, the three uh, Hebrew guys in the furnace. And we didn't really go into the interpretation of this dream. We just set up the the reality that the dream happened. And the fact that Daniel, his response to it was so amazing. So just to to kind of review chapter 2, coming up to the dream, the king had a dream, and he went to his advisors, Chaldeans and the magicians and the astrologers. He said, tell me my dream and what the interpretation is. And they said, no problem. What was your dream? And he said, no, you didn't understand me. You tell me the dream. Then I'll know the interpretation is accurate. They said, nobody can do that. He said, well, then I'm just going to get me a new set of counselors. And so he went to the captain of the guard and said, kill all the wise men. So they kind of start killing the wise men. They're slow rolling it, I think, hoping the king will kind of change his mind. Pretty rash. And Daniel asked the captain of the guard when the captain of the guard says, hey, sorry, I'm going to have to kill you. So I'm not sure how that conversation goes. You know, what day are you available? Or I'm not, I'm not sure what exactly they're talking about. But he says, well, why, why is this so hasty? This just sounds like something rash. What's the king up to? And he told him. And he appeals to the king. He's the appellate guy. This is the third appeal we've seen him do. And says, give me some time. So he and Shadrach, Meshach, and, and Abednego go, and pray, and God gives Daniel the interpretation of the dream. So he goes into the king. He says, I've got it. I've got it. And the king says, that's great. He said, well, it's not me. Not me. I'm just the messenger. Well, what you need to understand here is that there's a true and living God. And an interesting thing here is that even though we've already seen that when the other wise men have a chance to knock somebody off that's in front of them, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with the fiery furnace and the statue thing, that, and that's the culture there. You saw that last week. That's going to happen in chapter 3. And we'll see a little later that Daniel will have the lion's den episode when guys specifically try to set him up and knock him off. So you've got a culture where if you can get ahead by knocking somebody else off, you do. Daniel doesn't do that. He saves all the counselors and all the wise men. So we, we looked at... Daniel's amazing humility and his willingness to serve. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 31, and we get to the dream. Now, I love history, and I love understanding history, what happened, why it happened, what we can learn from it, and what we should do next. It's just totally fascinating to me. When we travel, I always want to go to some place where something significant happened. And for me, I can go to a place and talk to a guide and get a hundred times more out of the experience than if I read about it. Being there makes a big difference to me. So I've read about Waterloo, but when I actually went to Waterloo, I I walked away with what I thought was a pretty concrete idea about what happened, why it happened. And if you read secular historians, you know, that's what they're doing. They say, you know, here's what happened, here's why it happened, here's what then they project going forward. But what we have here is God's tour here. God's going to give us a tour. Unfortunately, we're not actually in Babylon, which that would really be cool. That's the one place on earth I'd really love to go see. Love to go see the ruins and things. I guess they're even more ruined now. You know, we're going to get a tour of history right now. So verse 31, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image, this great image whose splendor was excellent, stood before you. And its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. 
You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together, and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away, so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. As Dave said last week, when we get to chapter 3, there's going to be this big statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds. And he wants everybody to bow down to it. And it could well be that that's one of the takeaways he got from this dream, that he's got this idea from the dream. Wrong application, though, as we'll see. So verse 36, this is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand, and has made you ruler over them all. You are his head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom, inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever, inasmuch as you saw that the stone cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Well, here's what this dream is telling. And this is 600 B.C.-ish, sometime, sometime between 605 and whenever Nebuchadnezzar died, B.C. And the rest of history is being told. And, here, and here's what it is. Babylon is going to fall in 539 B.C. From the time of Nebuchadnezzar until the fall of Babylon, you only have about 66 years. And I think when Dave did the prelude to Daniel, he talked about the Persians, how they dammed up the river and went under the wall and just took Babylon in one night. And we're going to see that when we get to the the handwriting on the wall chapter. We're going, to, we're going to see that happen. That's the night it took place. That's Babylon, and that's the head of gold. And then next comes the Persians. The Persians lasted around 200 years, the Medo-Persian Empire. It went from roughly 539 B.C. to 330 B.C. We know in the dream that the head of gold is Babylon. We know that because Daniel told us that. That's, he said, you're the head of gold. You're, you're the king of kings. You're Babylon. We are going to see the Persians take over you know, in the next chapters of Daniel. So that's, that's fairly certain. And so the head of gold is Babylon, and the chest of silver is the Persians. And the next is going to come the Greeks, the bronze torso. The Greeks go from about 330 
to 31 B.C., so about 300 years. That's certain, and we're going to see this in chapter 8 when we get there. He's actually going to say, this is Persia, and this is Greece. He's going to use a different thing than the statue. He's going to use animals, and he's going to say, this is what's unfurling. And he's, he's going to say, that's his Greece. He's going to actually name it as Greece. And it's going to be unmistakable because there's this furious goat that goes out and conquers the earth. And then he dies. And then four horns come out of the goat and spread over all the earth. And that's Alexander the Great's four generals. And that's exactly what happened. For about 300 years, the Greeks ruled the world. And interestingly enough, in chapter 8, it talks about the kingdom of God coming in the time of the Greeks. Whereas in this dream, in these, uh, with this statue, it talks about another time, the time of iron and clay. How can both be true? I think it's fairly easy to understand looking backwards. And it is because it's arguable whether Rome took over Greece or Greece took over Rome. Because Rome adopted all the Hellenistic approach to life and became the purveyor of Hellenistic thought throughout the world, uh, even though Rome was the one that actually ruled the world. And Rome is the fourth kingdom. And Rome really probably took over fully from the Greeks about 31 B.C. And Rome goes all the way until today. And that surprises some people. You mean we're still in the Roman era? Oh, yeah. Uh, go back to verse 44, and that's really cemented. In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. So we're still in the Roman era. Now, if you study a little bit about Rome, that's really not very difficult to embrace. Just take into account uh, the reality that the Holy Roman Empire only dissolved in 1806, uh, just about 50 years before our Civil War. Uh, the Holy Roman Empire was still going until right before that time. If you look at Rome and what Rome was like, you'll see Rome was a republic. And then the republic became a, a tyranny. And then back to a republic again. There was this republic and power was dispersed. And great prosperity took place. And then the power started concentrating. And then there was an opportunity to get the power dispersed again. If you know much about American history, this is our, this cycles. We've already gone through this cycle multiple times. On the time of Franklin Roosevelt, there was wage and price controls. If you had a business, you could not even set your own prices. The government told you what prices to set. And then World War II came, and really, that didn't work. So they had to disperse the power again so that they could win the war. And now we're in the process of the power being concentrated again. And if you're reading the papers at all, what you're seeing now is there's actually a, a civil war happening between the administrative state and people who are employed in the administrative state and who live under a regime where they can't be fired and they have sovereign immunity and they get to make laws, interpret the laws, execute the laws, and adjudicate the laws, meaning all three branches of government are vested in these people who are not accountable to anyone. So little surprise that they're rebelling against someone that says, I want to take your power away. And that's, it's, it's happening on the headlines today. Well, it's because we're Roman. It's just another cycle. We're going through the Roman cycle. If you go to Rome and go to the Colosseum and look around and say, that would be a nice place for a football game. <laughs> yeah, I've been to this place before. You know, I like it. It's about, seats about 50,000. It's a little small, but, you know, it's, a, it's, it's not a bad place. Roman Colosseums. If you read about the gladiator games, you, know, you can find that on about 10 different stations on TV today. A little bit different, you know, a little bit different, but 
Uh, go, go watch the ultimate fighting stuff. You like blood? There's plenty of it. And they, you know, wipe the guys off in between the sessions or whatever. But it's actually, they found it's a little more humane because uh, the guys uh, don't take as much beating as they do in boxing because one blow knocks them out. Instead of boxing, you know, it takes 15 or so. So it's harder on your... So, you know, we, we have our version of gladiator games. If you go to watch uh, football replays, you know, if you see the highlights, they'll show the really vicious hits. And if the guy survived the hit, if the victim survived the hit, it'll be like, ooh, man, look at that. Let's watch it again. And if the victim went to the hospital or something terrible happened, it's, oh, whoa, that's really too bad. hope that doesn't happen next time. We like it. But are we going to stop playing the game? No, no, we'll all take a knee for a few minutes and then go back. You know, it, it, it's, it's really, it's the same type of thing. You go, you go to Europe today, you go driving around, you know what you drive on? Roman roads. You know why? Because they engineered those roads to go the right places. They have an interstate highway system, just like we do. There's just little difference. Go look at their uh, government buildings and their big temples and stuff. Looks just like the mall at, at uh, Washington, D.C. It's all the same buildings. Same symbols, even. Oh, one of our big symbols is an eagle. That was, was the theme of Rome. So we, we adopted their symbols. It, but you know why? Because we didn't have to adopt it. Because we're Roman. Now, America has a departure from historical precedent because we veered way over to the self-governing side, the republic side. We're way on the far extreme of that. And all that's happening now is it's starting to revert to the mean of how Rome, Rome operates. Now, what does it mean, all these different uh, things that happen, especially the Roman part? So let's just look at the pieces here because I think it's really instructive and we can think back on history and it makes a lot of sense. So the fourth kingdom's as strong as iron in as much as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything. So Rome's tendency is to smash stuff. Now, just think about history. Let's go all the way back to ancient Rome. One of the big rivalries was between Rome and Carthage. The Carthaginian general is named Hannibal. He's famous for having elephants in his army and for coming onto the continent of Europe and going across the Swiss Alps. If you go to St. Bernard's Monastery, that is where Hannibal crossed the pass to go over and fight Rome. It's a really cool part of history. That was a real surprise that awaited. I wanted to go up there and see the dogs, and instead I saw, you know, this is a really cool event that happened, and among other things. They had a huge battle with Hannibal, and finally, when they beat Hannibal, they went to Carthage, and they knocked everything down and salted it. Now, why would you do that? Carthage was like, a, it's northern Africa. It was modern-day Tunisia. It was a very prosperous country. Why wouldn't you just subjugate that and collect tribute? Because you roam. And sometimes things just need to be smashed to make a point. You know, if you go to Israel, you'll go to the Wailing Mall. And it's what's left of Herod's temple, one of the great engineering feats of the ancient world, maybe of any world. And the Romans were kind of in on the deal. The best I can formulate what happened, Herod came to power because, in part, he was really good at raising money. And he had a payment stream going back to the, going back to the Romans. The Romans liked money. And the way, one of the ways he did that was with these giant building projects. He had Caesarea by the sea where he built an artificial harbor. They actually sunk concrete into the sea and created an artificial harbor so they could, have, they could shorten the trade routes. And he took in fees from this, from this harbor, and you know, created a big cash flow stream. And the, the temple, you know, Jesus didn't like the, what was going on in the temple. He went and turned the tables over, remember? And he said, you've turned this into a den of thieves. 
best I can engineer what happened is, uh, this, and this is all Herod's deal. He's making deals with people. So the priests had this scheme where you would come and bring your sacrifice to the temple. And you could come in, you know, here's my, here's my sacrifice. It has to be without blemish. And that's determined by the priest, right? So the priest would say, uh, mm, yeah, it's a little bit short. Sorry. But, you know, we've got some that are already blessed over here. And you can buy those. Oh, sorry. You have to use temple money to buy those. But we've got a money-changing machine over here. We've got an ATM. You can go make a transaction there and, and get your temple money to buy the <laughs> blessed sacrifices. And then you're all good. And then they would take the blemished animal, go put them in the pen that become a blessed animal, and sell everything at three times the price, and, you know, one part goes to Herod. Ta-da! Pretty cool, huh? So when Herod got out of favor and the Romans decided we don't want this anymore, they came to Israel and knocked down every stone that was above ground on that temple. All that's left is like the, the platform that the thing was built on, and the wailing walls like was underground. And in order to knock this, I mean, these stones are gigantic. It would take, it would take like two cranes to even move these things. It's just not like they went over and pulled out a couple pillars and it all fell down. It's like, all right, all right, bring in the crew, bring in the cranes. All right, we're going to, how much is this going to take down? Every block, it's all got to come down, guys. Why? Why? Rome says, got to smash it to pieces. It's just what we do. Come on. Caesarea. It's this port. It's a cash cow. Hey, let's just knock. We've got to make examples, you know. Just knock this thing down. You can go there today and all the ruins are there because the Romans just came in and trashed the place. Okay? That's because that's what Rome does. That's the ancient. Now, we would never do anything like that, right? Yeah. There's a movie out now that accurately depicts the U.S. view of the Japanese during World War II. Uh, they were not they were not well received by the Americans, and and for legitimate reasons. What's that thing called? Hacksaw Ridge. There's not much more breaking to pieces and crushing that you can talk about more than the bombing of Japan. I mean, that's a smash to pieces. If you go to Germany today, you will not see old stuff very many places because we bombed it all to smithereens in World War II. Now. We're a little different in that we built it all back afterwards. That's a, that's a unique departure from Rome. That's the Christian side of it. But, you know, you make America mad, it's a bad idea because we're Rome. And we'll just come over and pave your country. You know, that's, that's what we do. But what about this iron and clay that it falls apart? Well, the Roman Empire did not ever get conquered, really. It's still around today. It just keeps breaking in pieces. You know, the Vandals came in and sacked Rome. They didn't defeat Rome. They just really sacked it. They ruined Rome's reputation. But all that meant is that Rome broke into pieces. And there's been this longing in the Roman world to reunite it. But it's still with us today. We have this big movement of globalism. We just got to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We can do it if we just all get along and do what I say. You know, that's, that's just... That's just all, all that it takes. Rome actually just fragmented. They just couldn't hold it together anymore. And that was about 450-something A.D. on the western side. But the eastern empire did not fall until 1453. It actually fell to the Turks, 1453. The Roman empire, one of the legs, remember two legs. It's going to have two legs, east and west, right? And the eastern leg actually stood until 1453. 
So that's right around the time America's discovered. The Western side, though, just keeps reconstituting and breaking into pieces. It was officially reconstituted on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., when Charlemagne, Charles the Great, was crowned king of the Holy Roman Empire. That's when they first said, okay, we're redoing the empire. So it wrote Roman Empire back in, Western Empire, Eastern Empire still going. But we want the Western Empire, now it's going again. But this time, it's holy. So now what we have is we're going to uh, holify the emperor by having him crowned by the pope. So now we have a spiritual king, and the spiritual king gives authority to the earthly king, and now we have God's kingdom on earth again. If you read the pronouncements of Columbus when he's coming to America, you know, so this is 600 years later, the Holy Roman Empire is still going. He says things like, hey, all these people in the, in the Caribbean islands... They're going to make great servants of God because we're going to put them in the salt mines. You know, they've just been like living on the beach eating bananas. And we're, we're going to put them in the salt mines and that will be, make them great Christian servants of God. So what's the thinking? If you're a slave to the king, giving gold to the king, you're a servant of God because the king is God's region on earth. Nice, huh? Nice for the king. I learned a lot of geography from cab drivers. And I had this cab driver in Houston. Is a really happy little short guy. And I got to chit-chatting with him. And he's from some state in Mexico that I can't remember to pronounce. One of those ones that has a bunch of X's in it. And anybody know it's the one that borders Guatemala? Yeah, that sounds right. Hey, good for you. How do you, do you know how to spell it? So, that was great. I guess it just has one X in it then. Is that, okay. So he, he said he was down by Guatemala. And that, it's only like a 20-minute cab drive, but I kind of got the guy's life. In this, in this cab ride. And uh, why did I start talking about this? <laughs> yeah, but why? I was going to make a point about this, and now I can't remember what the point was. Where am I? Huh? What is it? Salt mines. Salt mines. That's it. <laughs> Squirrel. Yeah. So, he, and I started asking him, and he turns out he's not Mexican. He was Indian, and his first language was an Indian language that I can't remember or pronounce either. It's like his second language was Spanish, third language, English. So I was talking to him, and the conversation drifted to the point where it's really easy to ask him about, well, are you Catholic? Or He said, no, 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 no. No, I don't want anything to do with those guys. So, okay, this is really interesting. He said, no, those guys came over, and they basically said, uh, you convert to Catholicism, or we're going to kill you all. So I don't want anything to do with any religion that's a convert or die religion. Okay. Well, that kind of fits with the Holy Roman Empire version, doesn't it? He said, no, but you know, my ancestors, we did human sacrifice. <laughs> so that's not any better. No, I decided I'm just going to follow Jesus. I thought, isn't this cool? Everywhere on earth you find guys like, no wonder he's such a smiley guy. <laughs> It was really neat. I loved the guy. That's all kinds of other stuff he told me. that I should have gotten his phone number. Maybe I could have had him come speak. So anyway, yeah, the Holy Roman Empire, I mean, they, it is, okay, if you won't agree with us, then you won't be a servant of God. We'll just kill you. That's easy, right? Make it simple for people. 
it didn't really stand. You know, that if you, if you go to uh, Vienna today, you can learn all about the Holy Roman Empire. And the, the Habsburgs were the main family that did the Holy Roman Empire. And they didn't conquer that much. They mostly just married. So marriage became a, like an a, a emergent acquisition market. I wonder if they had investment bankers for that. Probably. That's probably where the match, well, yeah, kind of like an eHarmony sort of a thing. It was a... Uh, yeah, so that, that's how they, and they would, you know, have their girlfriends and whatever for their own pleasure, but then they would have this marriage stuff. That's how they acquire. And they, you look at the empire, and it just keeps shrinking and, you know, break, breaking in pieces and so forth. And then it was dissolved in 1806 because the Holy Roman Emperor, I think, was in Austria at that time. And there was this fellow named Napoleon who had sort of broken loose and was wreaking havoc on the monarchies of Europe and winning. And the empire, emperor of Austria knew that Napoleon was coming for his crown. So he just one day said, oh, no more Holy Roman Empire. I'm just emperor of Austria. Small, small little piece. Didn't stop Napoleon from coming. He went over that same pass that Hannibal went over. He's uh, the second big uh, parade that came across in front of St. Bernard's Monastery, which, by the way, has been there since the 1100s and is a faith-based ministry, still operating today. It's Rome. If you say a Caesar in German, what's the word? Kaiser. If you say Caesar in Russian, what's the word? Tsar. You get it? We are Romans, and we just keep breaking in pieces and reforming. And in the days of those kings, another kingdom will be set up. And go back to... Verse 34, you watched while a stone was cut out without hands. So how many of you ever seen that happen? Let's go to the quarry and watch someone quarry this stone with no hands. So now the finger of God has written on stone before. We saw that, didn't we, back in Moses' time? But now the finger of God's actually going to quarry the stone. And this stone's going to be used like a bowling ball. The bowling is biblical. He's just going to bowl down. It's going to hit this statue. It's only one pin. And kaboom, the whole thing breaks up and fills the whole earth. And that kingdom is going to stand forever. And whereas these four previous kingdoms all build on one another and all have characteristics of one another, the new kingdom's not going to be anything like it. So let's go to Revelation chapter 13, where we've been before, because we just finished Revelation. And I, I just want you to see all the parallels again. Now we've seen it through Daniel's eyes. We've seen it through the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 13, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. And on his ten horns, ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet like the feet of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him power, his throne, his authority. And I saw one of his heads had been mortally wounded and deadly wounded and was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 7. And what we're going to see here is Daniel's dream. And it's going to be the same four kingdoms again. It's going to be just like the Revelation one. Daniel 1 through 6 is kind of chronological history of Daniel and his interaction with the kingdoms Babylon and Persia. 7 through the end of the book is like the prophetic section of the book. So this is the first part of the prophetic section of the book. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, that's the guy that does the handwriting on the wall story we'll see later, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. So this time it isn't coming through the king, it's just come straight to Daniel. And he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, 
I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other, just like in Revelation. The first was a lion and had an eagle's wings. That's Babylon. Babylon's actually had as its mascot a lion. Eagle's wings. Why eagle's wings? Anybody have an idea on Babylon why it would have eagle's wings? We can see it if we go over to if you go to Habakkuk 1:6 and he's talking about the Chaldeans coming over and, and invading Israel. He says, "Indeed, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation." The Babylonians were well known for just rapid strikes. That is lightning fast. And then the wings are plucked off. And he's made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. That's Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to see that soon, because Nebuchadnezzar is actually going to become one of the great spiritual godly men of the Bible, which is one of the craziest things in the Bible, and one of my favorite. Uh, never, never underestimate God's ability to change a heart. So that's uh, Babylon. And then another beast, a second one, like a bear. How many of you would like to meet a bear in the woods? So bears are vicious when they pay attention to you, right? So he's raised up on one side, and he had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and they said to it, thus, arise, devour much flesh. So I get the image of the bear kind of laying on its side, chomping on these ribs, because he's just so gorged he can't stand up anymore. It's kind of the same. And the commentaries say, and it might be like bigger on one side, because Persia was bigger than than the Medes and whatever, and maybe that's part of it too, but... He's obviously full. Probably the three ribs here uh, represent three Persian conquests. The big ones were Egypt, Babylon, and Lydia, which was western Turkey or Asia. So after this, I look, and there's another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. So a leopard with four wings. Now you're talking about something really fast. And the leopard is the most vicious of all. We went to the San Diego Zoo, and we got this back stage tour, which was fantastic. And they took us to the leopard cage. And they showed us kind of how they feed the leopard and all this stuff. And then they started talking about this leopard. It's a little bitty thing. It's about 75 pounds. It wasn't much bigger than our dog. And he said, occasionally we will let the lions come into the leopard cage and the leopard go in the lion's cage. You know, not at the same time, but they, they, you know, just so they can have a little change of experience. Said So we did that, and there's several lions, you know, big, you know, shaggy mane and the pride and all that, and just one leopard. So when they let the leopard go into the lion cage, she walks right out, smells the lion, and says, like, all right, is somebody in here that needs a piece of me? Because <laughs> if you do, just, let's just get it on. How many of you are there? Five? That's not enough. That's the attitude of the leopard. And they say the lions came over and smelled the leopard and wouldn't come out. <laughs> They, they would just kind of peek around the corner to see if the leopard's there. And finally, when they got convinced there was no leopard, then they came out. You get increasingly vicious here. And this leopard has four wings. So it's not that they're not fast enough. The thing can fly, too. Well, that's Greece. I mean, Alexander conquered the Persians like in three years or some crazy thing. Maybe six, Maybe it was six years. It wasn't very long. It's just... Just like like lightning. Now, part of that is because the way he went about it, that we'll talk about at another time. This is Greece. And then he saw in the night visions, verse 7, Behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, devouring, breaking in pieces. You've heard that before, right? had huge iron teeth. It's trampling residue with its feet. Rome. There's Rome. Now let's go back to, to Revelation again, 13, Revelation chapter 13. And let's just go through it again. The beast was like a leopard, 
So there's grease. It's vicious. Its feet were like the feet of a bear. So it's got the, the pillars, the foundation of Persia. Maybe Persia was pretty well known for its administrative capabilities. That was a strength and a weakness. We'll talk about that in the future. And his mouth like the mouth of a lion. He's got the, the meanness of a leopard, the speed of a leopard, and the jaw-crunching ability of a lion. So we see that these, these kingdoms are all built on top of one another. As they go along, they acquire each other's characteristics. And when we get to the end here, the beast, it's got like the best and worst of all the things. Best in terms of strength, worst in terms of what the strength is applied to. So that's the world's kingdom. But what's going to happen is that world kingdom, that single statue made up of four pieces, that one beast that has characteristics of all the four kingdoms that have come before it is going to be smashed into pieces, turned into chaff, thrown to the wind, and to be never more. Now, if politics bothers you, think about that often. This is just a temporary battle we're fighting. It's one we need to fight. We're citizens. We've seen from... Romans chapter 13, it, we the people, it's our responsibility what this country becomes, and we all have a, a citizen responsibility to exert. Each one of us will be called a different way to do that. But ultimately, ultimately, the real answer is a total displacement. And fortunately, our permanent citizenship is in that kingdom. Isn't that cool? Now, why is that message in Daniel? And why is that message in Revelation? Well, let's just close by thinking about the context of Daniel. They're ripped out of their homeland. They have been told the temple will protect you. God will never let anybody come and knock the temple down. God told them through Jeremiah that that was wrong, and they didn't listen. So they come and knock the temple down, and they pluck them over into Babylon. Now God told them, I'm, going to do this. I'm doing this for your good, and I'm going to bring you back in 70 years. But if you're in Babylon, don't you want to know does God really have this under control, really? I mean, I've got the priests telling me one thing, and I've got the prophets telling me something else. Who am I supposed to believe? And along comes God and says, Well, let me just give you something that's so spectacular and so validated by, guess who? The king of the world, Nebuchadnezzar. That you just got to believe it. And here's what I want you to get. i got this. The whole world is in my hands. Nothing's going to happen that I don't authorize. We come to the early church. Horrific persecution. The church is going to go from a tiny group of people to half of the earth in 300 years. And along the way, horrific persecution takes place. And it's Rome that's doing the persecution. Now you're in the Roman era. And people want to know, well, are we doing the right thing? Is this, is this where we're supposed to be going? And the message is the same. And as we saw in Revelation... No matter how crazy the circumstances are, God just wants us to be a faithful witness and not fear death. And guess what? That message isn't new. Because what was he telling the Jews in Babylon that had been displaced from their homes? And in Daniel's case, probably castrated and made to go through a pagan university. He's telling them, look, just be a faithful witness. Don't fear death. I got this. This is my world. Pretty cool, huh? So uh, next time, we'll keep going on in, in Daniel and see what happens with Nebuchadnezzar. Great character. Thanks, God, for this message. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for your control of the world and the, all of its history. In Jesus' name, amen.